uh, David Mosley. David uh, is, I have very warm feelings in my heart for David, because <laughs> I was in that cold, distant country of England, and uh, he was the guy who uh, kind of uh, befriended me there. He, he, we uh, were at Nottingham University together. Uh, I was actually studying at a little uh, seminary, St. John's, and then uh, doing work at, at uh, Nottingham. But, David, who were who you studying with at Nottingham? So I, I finished my Ph.D. studying with uh, Reverend Dr. Simon Oliver and Dr. Mary Cunningham. And tell, I mean, uh, my experience at Nottingham, I, I'm, I'm sort of curious, you and I, since it's been years, what, it's been about three years now? Uh, yeah, yeah, since we first met. Yeah, and so my experience with Nottingham, I had been, of course, I chose this bizarre character <laughs> to do my Ph.D. dissertation on. And I don't imagine that there were too many places in the world other than Nottingham University that, first of all, would have recognized what I was doing. But even even uh, Nottingham, you know, when, when I first began, um, radical orthodoxy had not yet located there. But in the period that I had begun and then my first advisor eventually dropped out, and uh, then radical orthodoxy had come together there. And the day that I asked uh, someone from there to advise my, uh, be a reader for my uh, dissertation, Connor Cunningham answered the same day and said he would do it because he is quite familiar with uh, Slavoj Zizek. Right. And so the, the, my experience at Nottingham was then through I, I didn't really know Milbank or the other people, but uh, it, plug in the, the two people that you were studying with. What was their relationship then? To sure, the sure. So uh, Simon Oliver is, in my opinion, he's the unsung hero of radical orthodoxy. Uh, everyone knows John Milbank. Everyone knows Catherine Pickstock. A lot of people, thanks to the BBC documentary he did a few years ago, know Connor Cunningham. Uh, but very few people know Simon. And so Simon was actually Catherine Pickstock's, I believe, her first doctoral student. So Catherine first studied under John, Simon first studied under Catherine, and that's, that's kind of the, the genealogy, if you want to <laughs> play with that language there. Uh, so Simon does work. He's a, I suppose to situate him a little more, he's an Anglo-Catholic priest, so he's an Anglican, but very much Catholic-leaning uh, like John and really the rest of them. Uh-huh. Uh, Connor, while I was his student, I think became Catholic. Yes. Yeah. Connor kind of became Catholic in, I think, my second year of my PhD. Uh, he'd gone from Methodism to Anglicanism to Roman Catholicism. Uh, so Simon, Simon's an Anglican priest. Uh, he does work. He's a, he's a great systematician. He does a lot of work. He's currently, I believe, working on a book on creation like the theology of creation and a book on teleology. Uh, his first and only full length book that he's written is called philosophy, God in motion. And it's about our changing understandings of what it means to move or to change and how that relates to our understanding of God. Uh, so that's, 
That's Simon, really, in a nutshell. Um, he's the one who edited the Radical Orthodoxy, A New Theology volume. Uh-huh. And so he's, he's an often silent voice, but a very powerful one, I think. Um, what was the, his main work, God, Change, and Motion? Is that the... Uh... Philosophy, God, and Motion. Okay. Tell me how that plugs into, or explain how that plugs into, uh, in a broad way, radical orthodox uh, undertaking. Sure. Now you're asking me a question about a book I read about five years ago, so we can see what I remember. But basically, as I recall, Simon tracks how we how we understand change and movement. So, you know, in with Aristotle, for instance, we get this whole notion of the unmoved mover, right? And in fact, one of the key things that, that has to be remembered is that movement there also means change. It doesn't just mean locomotion, it means any kind of inner change, inner motion. So Simon tracks that starting, I believe, if I remember correctly, with Thomas Aquinas and then through thinkers like Descartes, Kant, and others, showing how uh, we get this shift in understanding of what it means to change, what it means to move. And from there, if I remember correctly, he makes some similar kind of genealogical moves, uh, as does, say, John Milbank, discussing things like nominalism and univocity, Simon talks about them in terms of motion and change. Um, that's, that's, that's what I can remember. Okay. <laughs> oh, all right. And so you were, what was your work? Uh, what was your dissertation? In with, with right. So I wrote on deification and human creativity. Um, my, my book is now called De- uh, being deified poetry and fantasy on the path to God. Um, and so there, I had kind of two goals with that, with that thesis. Uh, the first was that I saw a lack of centrality uh, regarding deification or theosis, as it's often called in, in Eastern Orthodoxy, in Western Christianity. Um, we're often very uncomfortable with it, particularly in Protestant circles. Uh, are we uncomfortable with anything that sounds like that? Um, I may or may not have had a former student call me a straight-up Mormon for teaching deification in a, an intro theology class. So that's, that's one of the things we're up against. So my goal in that, in that book was to kind of ground that. And I did so by organizing the first part of my thesis around the, the, the economy of salvation, right? Creation, fall, incarnation, and redemption, and showed how deification is central to all of those topics. You know, God created us. Well, why did he create us? He created us to deify us, to join us to himself. Uh-huh. The second uh, thing that I was doing in that book, however, was to talk about how does deification relate to, or more perhaps the other way around, how does human creativity relate to deification? Now, human, by human creativity, I really meant just about anything, um, all to, to kind of play on, uh, paraphrase David Jones, uh, a noted uh, I think late 19th, early 20th century Catholic theologian and philosopher, uh, you know, human art includes everything from bread, break, bread baking to cricket. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and so on the one hand, I meant human creativity by anything that we create, but I want that was obviously that would have been a huge topic. So I focused my efforts on areas with which I have some familiarity already, namely the genre of fantasy and poetry. Uh-huh. 
Uh, and I chose those two because I see an inherent link between them uh, in the sense that poetry, it causes us to see language in a new way, right? It, it puts language uh, into different parameters than what we're normally used to. You know, we're normally used to prose, to talking, uh, language being laid out very, uh, very simply, in right, other words. Right. Um, poetry. Right, in fashion. right. Poetry kind of breaks that. It causes us to think about the relationship between words when we rhyme them or when we use alliteration and, and so on. So it kind of breaks language in order to get us to see it in a new light. Fantasy does something di- uh, similar with reality in general. It takes things like trees, or rocks, or bread and wine, and it puts them into a new context for us to see them so that when we come away, we don't encounter a tree and only think of a tree. Right? We don't simply think of a thing with bark that grows leaves and maybe fruit. We can see something truer about it because of our encounter with fantasy. And so I, I wanted to see how does deification relate to this? And I did that by basically saying that on the one hand, when we create, we, um, when we create, we are imitating and participating in God as creator. Uh, and also when we consume, when we, when we absorb other creativity, you know, when we read fantasy or poetry or whatever, uh, that these things, these various things, have different ways of drawing us into God. Again, with poetry and fantasy, it's about seeing things as they are, not how kind of habituation has caused us to see them. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, uh, uh, obviously, is this, by the way, I should, we should say who published your book and how we could get your book while we're on the topic. So Fortress Press put that out. Uh, it's at a staggering $79.00. Uh, so, oh, your book's cheaper than mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, it it was it was sadly the sale is over. It was on sale uh, for ebook copies for ten dollars, but those have gone back up to about forty for ebook. But I think a paperback should be coming out in the next year or so, and that'll be mm-hmm. okay. All right, so that was your you published your dissertation and and now you've begun uh, working with fiction. Make the link for us then, and I, I think the link is fairly obvious, but but draw it out for us then how you got into the right yeah, sure. so in fact, uh, both books were published around the same time because I wrote both of them at around the same time. In the second year of my PhD, I decided writing one book wasn't enough and started oh yeah. <laughs> reworking an old uh, piece of fiction that I had started back when I was in college. Uh, and so, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the link between the two is, is fairly obvious. I'm sitting here talking about human creativity, and it wasn't enough for me to simply talk about it. I needed to also perform it. Uh, that was an inherent part for me of my, of my dissertation, really. I, I actually considered appending it to the dissertation at one point or appending something to it, but instead decided to do two books. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, when I was doing my dissertation, uh, you know, so I talk about fantasy, I focused primarily on people like George MacDonald, GK Chesterton, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Uh-huh. So constantly reading those guys who I'd been reading all of my life anyway, uh-huh. just really instilled in me a desire to get back to, creating fiction. Uh-huh. 
There is, a, I mean, uh, just from the the title and the, the topic, it does ring of Tolkien uh, 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 quite a bit. Is that is that a, a, a true assessment or? Uh, yes. Um, so the the title on the edges of Elfland uh, really came about because the original title was the history and happenings uh, of the village of Carlisle, and that was just way too long. Uh-huh. <laughs> And too limiting, but also yeah. there's uh, there was something of Chesterton behind that as well, and his ethics of Elfland and, and orthodoxy that that made me choose that word as opposed to others I might have chosen or trying to create my own uh-huh. kind of word for fairy or Elfland. Uh-huh. Now, in both Chesterton and Tolkien, you're uh, the is there they're they're both Catholic. Yep. And I'm wondering then if your own uh, if you would uh, connect your your own journey then in some way and your fiction mm-hmm. and uh, uh, your Catholicism. Absolutely. So uh, I'm supposed to take things back a long way for a moment to bring them up rather quickly. Uh, I I came to faith when I was about, but when I, I was baptized when I was 13 years old in a Church of Christ in Jacksonville, Illinois. So uh you know, one of the three streams of the Restoration Movement um, ironically decided that I liked the whole Jesus thing when they took me to a Christian music festival, uh, which is ironic because they're a cappella in their own service. <laughs> uh, but I wasn't one of those ones who just didn't like it for Sundays but didn't mind yeah. it the rest of the time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, while I, I had been reading Tolkien and Lewis for most of my life, um, I wasn't raised going to church. That was a decision I made when I was in junior high school. Uh, and throughout that time, then I just really slowly at first and then very quickly fell in love with reading the Bible, fell in love with theology. Uh, so that when I got to uh, Lincoln Christian university, where I did my, my undergraduate and graduate work and I was doing my, my master's in church history, you know, I'm spending all of my time reading people like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Gregory Nazianzus and so on. And, and really kind of, uh, even they're falling in love, not simply with, say, their understanding of scripture or, uh, you know, this is where I was first introduced to deification, for instance, but not, it wasn't just those things. It was the way they looked at the world in general. Uh-huh. Uh, it was very different from how, you know, the society around me was teaching me to see the world and yet so much more similar to the, the books that I was reading. Uh-huh. You know, the way that Lewis and Tolkien look at the world is much more similar to the way that, say, Augustine looks at the world than the way that, um, that our modern society does. So I'm, you know, I'm working through all of these things. I'm, I'm reading people who are either Catholics like Chesterton and Tolkien or who, you know, Lewis definitely falls on the Catholic spectrum of Anglicanism. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I go to Nottingham uh, and I work under an Anglo-Catholic priest and an Orthodox layperson, uh, because Dr. Mary Cunningham, she's not associated with radical orthodoxy, wonderful church historian and historical theologian. Uh, and she's, she's lay Orthodox. Uh, and so, you know, all of that is just kind of roiling inside of me and, and trying to figure out how, how do I work all of this out? Uh, even there were times in, in my dissertation where I'm talking about liturgy and yet 
that's being contrasted with the tradition that I was raised in that doesn't have an intentional liturgy. All churches have liturgy, whether they recognize it or not, but uh, the Restoration Movement certainly uh, doesn't have, particularly in the Christian churches, Churches of Christ, and in the Churches of Christ a cappella, don't have a set liturgy of any kind. And so there were feelings of not of being kind of intellectually dishonest to a little bit, because I'm talking about how wonderful, great, and beautiful liturgy is. And, you know, I'm quoting John Milbank on how it's kind of the highest expression of human art. And yet the church I'm attending is not, is not partaking of that in the same way that at least I want them to. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, maybe they adopt a few things, uh, you know, and, and there are, there's some churches that are doing some really great stuff. They're, they're doing Advent, Ash Wednesday, all that kind of stuff, but it's still, there was something missing for me. And a lot of that was, was a deep sacramentality. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's something in a way that comes through in the book. Uh, So in the book, you know, it takes place in a small English village uh, that I invented, (laughs) Uh, you know, that I never make it clear in the book, whether it's an Anglican church or Roman Catholic church, Uh, Mm -hmm. it could really function either either way, but it's the only church in town. Church Christ. (laughs) Uh, probably not. <laughs> uh, I think I think they'd mock at calling people Father Nicholas and so on. So it's yeah, definitely yeah. on the high end of, of things. Uh-huh. Um, but there was, and and so there was this there was this sacramentality, this uh, sacramental ontology, if you want to use that kind of language, that I I felt was missing in the tradition that I love and the tradition that raised me and the tradition that brought me to Christ and taught me to read the scriptures and, uh-huh. and to do theology even, it was missing. And I, and explain a little bit the, the, the thought there between uh, the idea of a sacramental ontology. And I assume that's what the whole story is, is displaying in, yeah, in a way for sure. Um, so sacramental ontology is a word that comes about, sometime in, in the 19th century. Um, I, can't, I think it's Eve Conger who's the first one to use it um, during the Ressourcement period when Catholic theologians are getting back to reading people like Augustine and, and Aquinas and not just reading the, the Thomists who had been interpreting them all along. Um, it's something that got picked up particularly by uh, a, refer- uh, a reformed theologian, Hans Buersma. Uh, but it's essentially the idea that being, you know, ontology, being itself is in some way sacramental. That is, that it, it is a sign of a thing signified. Uh-huh. So it's, it's sacramental, it's not a sacrament. You know, sacrament is not only a sign of a thing signified, it also bestows grace uh-huh. in a very particular way. A sacramental ontology is the recognition that all of created reality inherently participates in God. And because of that, all created reality shows God forth if only we can have, you know, the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Uh-huh. And so in the book, while it's not, it's not overt, you know, this isn't, this isn't thinly veiled Christian allegory. It's, it's what I call it. It's a fairy tale for grownups. And if it, if it does things along these lines, it's simply because that's how I think reality works. Uh-huh. But part of it, uh, for sure, is this desire to get us to see created reality a little more clearly, Uh to see it as something more enchanted in the sense that 
God's presence is throughout all of these things, and not just God, but that there are angels and demons and honestly, Lord knows what else kind of out there that is created just like we are, and yet we don't recognize these realities. We don't recognize how close the spiritual really is to the physical. You know, the spiritual upholds the physical. The physical is suspended from it. It's the source for the physical. And so in the book, you know, some of the things that I'm doing, some of the, the reasons that I'm so interested in talking about forests and fairies and elves and all of that kind of thing is because of the way that they can symbolize uh, the fact that a tree is not just a tree. You know, that a flower is not just a flower. Uh-huh. That in, in one sense, that matter matters. That Christianity is not a Gnostic uh-huh. religion. It is, it is an embodied Right, right. So is, uh, but, but are, you were very careful in there in not linking creation directly to sacrament. Or, well, so some created things are sacraments, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, water and baptism is a physical thing that is a sacrament. Uh-huh. Bread and wine uh, or grape juice uh, in, in communion in the Eucharist is a sacrament. Um, and, you know, now that I'm Catholic, I can say things like the oil and, and uh, confirmation, our bodies and marriage, uh-huh. etc. All These physical things are sacraments. And um, something that actually my one of my supervisors, Simon Oliver, used to say all the time that I've, I've really adopted is um, that we know that the world is sacramental because there are sacraments. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The The literal sacraments, things like baptism and communion, if, if you want to, you know, if, if we want to temporarily leave it at those two, because nearly every Christian uh, tradition recognizes those two sacraments in some way. Uh, but, you know, the, the reason that we can know that a tree isn't just a tree, the reason we can know that God, you know, the, the world is filled with the grandeur of God, to, to paraphrase Jared Manley Hopkins, is precisely because we can encounter God in very particular ways uh-huh. through the sacraments. And so the sacraments themselves become a sign for the sacramentality of all of creation. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it, you're describing something that I, I would imagine that in, in the way that you described it, that any good Christian might agree with. I certainly think so. <laughs> <laughs> but the the idea of that that God's uh, uh, God's presence is uh, uh, mediated to us then in and through uh, the created order. Uh, yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's it exactly. And I think I think what scares so many people sometimes is either either the language of sacraments in, gen- in general, uh, this particularly for uh, lower church Protestants, that, that language, it sounds so Catholic, and because they often don't understand what it is Catholics actually think and believe, they, they think it's some kind of worship of, of matter itself. It's some kind of idolatry. Uh-huh. And that isn't the case, because it's always about actually encountering Christ in those moments. Uh-huh. You know, it's not, it's not a worship of the things as they, insofar as they are things, it's worshiping Christ who is present in those things, in those moments. Uh-huh. Um, but I, so I think the language of sacrament scares a lot of people. And then I think, I think largely we've just, we've been so beaten down by however you want to source it. If you want to try and source it in Duns Scotus, the way John Milbank does with the university and nominalism, if you want to try and source it in the enlightenment, um, 
I'm not, I'm not as interested in sourcing our problems as simply saying what they are and figuring out how we fix them. Uh, but I think we've been so beaten down by this, this picture of reality that tells us that the world and particularly created reality is one thing. Uh-huh. And it's kind of, it's over here and God is over here. Uh-huh. Right. And not only are they two separate things, there's no natural relationship between them. But in fact, this thing is kind of bad. You know, the, the world is bad. The flesh is, is ultimately bad. And you see that in the way we talk about things. Uh-huh. We go out to save souls. Right, right. You know, we don't, we don't go out to save human beings. We go out uh-huh. to save souls. Uh-huh. You see it in the way so many well-meaning Christians today react to uh, environmentalist causes. Uh, the way so many people, Catholic, Protestant, uh, uh, and so on, reacted to Laudato Si by Pope Francis, uh, you know, on care for our common home, that we've just, we've imbibed this notion that ultimately this world is kind of destined for fire anyway, so it doesn't really matter what we do with it because we've got a bad eschatology that doesn't recognize that the new heavens and the new earth are probably more appropriately the renewed heavens, <laughs> right, right, right. the recreated heavens and earth. Uh, there's, so we forget that there's this natural link between what exists now uh-huh. and what's going to exist uh, in the life to come. We forget that there's a link between the two. And so while I agree with you that most you know, thoughtful Christians ought to agree that God's presence is mediated to us throughout all of created reality. I think the reason we don't so often is because we've so divorced God from matter. Uh-huh. We've so divorced him that, you know, sometimes it seems like we even forget that God became incarnate. Uh-huh. That God united, created reality to himself in a new way in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we've, we've just simply forgotten that. And so, yeah, there, the, uh, I was saying a couple things here that, you know, uh, Wendell Berry, I think, is an example of a, a, a kind of uh, out of a Protestant uh, mm-hmm. understanding that has this. And, and, of course, you could just multiply uh, those sorts of, of, of people that what you're getting from uh, uh, Wendell Berry or, or uh, is, is this idea of, you know, that God's presence there. In, in nature, but I, I wanted I wanted to go back a little bit and dwell on the negative nom- mm-hmm. aspect of nominalism. Let's locate it a little bit. Um, that certainly it's not uh, simply a uh, you know oh it's that Dun Scotus or, it, um, but it it I think that in in a sense you can almost link Protestantism, and and I'm saying this. As one who does, I'm not Roman Catholic, right? Because I think it's a, pro- a problem you find within Roman Catholicism too. Mm-hmm. But uh, in other words, uh, when you say nominalism, run down a little bit how that is peculiarly uh, taken up in a Protestant uh, view of things. Sure. So I mean, we've got nominalism, William of Ockham, this notion that. Uh, the name that things and the names of things aren't connected to some kind of ultimate reality. There's no realm of ideas as Plato kind of pictured it that 
where all of created reality is kind of there in perfected form, and we then get uh, either either in a misreading of Plato, an imperfected form of it here, or in fact, uh, we just we get physical manifestations of it. Um, I think you can see this picking up even as early as Luther in some ways, um, who, and I'm going to forget which text this was of Luther's, uh, but it was one before he was excommunicated, um, where he's talking about prayer, and he's trying to go against this notion that the position one prays in matters in any way. Uh, and on the one hand, you can see where Luther's coming from with that, right? That if you think you can only pray, say, when on your knees, or you can only pray when prostrated, totally laying down, well, of course, that's not true. You can pray under all sorts of circumstances. But on the other hand, being in an attitude of prayer, which is a pretty common thing that you hear in Protestant churches, right? You need to be in the right attitude, the right mindset. Well, frankly, part of getting in the right attitude and the right mindset is being in the right physical space and in the right physical position. Uh, you know, it's a lot easier to pray if you're sitting or kneeling because that's what you're focusing on than if you're laying down in bed <laughs> or you fall asleep. And so you see, you can see things like that kind of building up in Protestantism where we continue to get a divorce between things and, and essentially God, um, you know, you can even, I suppose you could see this to a certain extent in, say, Calvin's uh, spiritual understanding of communion, right, where Christ is spiritually present but not physically present, because, again, you've got this disconnect between the physical and the, and the spiritual. But Calvin, you know, is still a step closer than, say, Ulrich Zwingli, who gives us that it's simply a memorial, that there's no way this physical thing of bread and wine can in any way spiritually or physically be connected to Christ. And so we get there this, this really kind of true divorce between a physical reality and a spiritual reality. Um, and I think you kind of, you see that continuing to work forward as Protestantism develops. Um, I think you can see it to a certain extent with the Anabaptists, with Menno Simons and the, the mystic, like the special mystical mysterious body of Christ that isn't a human body exactly like ours, but it's something different. Uh, and I think you see that proliferate as Protestantism develops in, in the United States. And we continue to get a disconnect between kind of what we do and what we are. Mm -hmm. um, Tell me, give me uh, from then your perspective how this has impacted art. Is this, in other words, what you're doing, as I see you're doing in your fiction, is you're, you're bringing a particular theological perspective and trying to work this out and, show, and demonstrate then uh, how your theological understanding can then be portrayed in an alternative artistic mm -hmm. understanding. And so can, can, could you describe, I guess what I'm, maybe it's not a fair question, but uh, I'm, I'm asking you to give us examples of, of bad art <laughs> and then what would be the difference between bad art and good art? Sure. It's really funny that you asked me this because this is one of the key things that was uh, asked of me when I was defending my dissertation <laughs> is, is what is, you know, is there art that can, that can damn us? Is there art that can do the opposite work of deification? Um, so on the one hand, 
bad bad art can take can take many forms. I mean, on the one hand, you've got just simply bad art in the sense that it's bad to the form. Uh, and on the Christian level, we're replete with examples of that. Uh, whether it's God's Not Dead, which gives us hackneyed versions of stereotypical college philosophy professors and ends the whole thing with what is it, the Newsboys concert, I think, or Hillsong. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm pretty sure Michael Tate is there and I, I had a Jesus freak period too. So, you know, I know who he is, <laughs> but whether it's that, whether it's these incredibly cheesy, um, they look, I don't know if you've ever seen them. They look like Harlequin novels, except that they're Amish. So everyone is fully clothed. Uh, I'd say buttoned up, but the Amish don't believe in buttons. Uh, but, but everyone's fully clothed on the cover, but it looks like a Harlequin romance novel, and they're just Amish romance novels. Uh-huh. Those those are things that, to me, are bad art in the sense that they're they're bad to the form, right? Uh-huh. And that this happens, I think, when we as Christians uh, become reactionary, right? We see what secular culture is doing, and we attempt to replicate it but with a Christian veneer. Uh-huh. And essentially what, what that really gets at in a way is, is, you know, what John Milbank talks about when he talks about secular autonomous reason, this notion that like reason is just this thing. And then you can super add to it, whatever kind of lens you want to, but it's, right, purest, right. Form, it's purest form would obviously be the secular because that has no super added lens. Right, right. That's exactly what a lot of Christian culture is doing. Uh-huh. It's treating that as a real thing, that we've just got this autonomous secular reason. It's not inherently religious. There's this secular culture. You know, it's not inherently religious. And then we can just super add our religiousness to it. Uh-huh. Uh, so that, that to me would be bad Christian art. Um, and I also think that we can see some bad Christian art when we try to be too, too didactic. Now, some people think that Lewis was too didactic, and I disagree with them. Because I think he's doing things that no one even realized he was doing until recently in some cases. I think that was Tolkien's criticism. Yes, it was. And I think Tolkien would have changed his mind if he saw what Christians were doing today. Uh, the, The chief example I can give of this, and I've only ever read the first book, I don't even know if he ended up making more, but Alistair McGrath, noted uh, historical theologian and systematician, very good at that, briefly started, and again, I don't know if he finished, uh, his own little fiction trilogy, I think it was. Uh-huh. Can't recall the name off the top of my head. I read the first volume because I got it for free uh, in an ebook form, and it was terrible. Uh-huh. It was about two kids growing up in Oxford, uh, and they suddenly find themselves transported to another world where all the people there worship the one. And the one is, of course, God. Uh-huh. And it was so blatantly obvious in the the prose was terrible <laughs> so it was bad to form and it was just it was bad it was a bad outworking of theology in my opinion uh-huh. now whether or not my book is good it's for other people to decide uh-huh. i think it's okay uh-huh. uh but but this is you know so so that's that's kind of the bad part uh-huh. right when, when either we get too didactic where we we try to use fiction we try to use art simply as a like as a lower method of doing theology which is essentially what McGrath was doing or when we try to make it a christianized version of something secular in both cases that art's going to fail 
it's not going to last. This is what this is what makes the writings of people even like T.S. Eliot, uh, Charles Williams, you know, so inklings, non-inklings, what, what makes their art so very interesting is that that's exactly not what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. They're, in fact, simply trying to create. And they're trying, the, the only way in which they are trying to outwork their own theology and their prose is simply because this is what they actually believe. And so when they write fiction, when they write poetry, that just naturally comes out. Uh, and, you know, and sure, some of them have more didactic purposes, like Lewis often did. But they, they did it with such joie de vivre <laughs> that, that is missing in a lot of bad Christian. <laughs>